you know, the thing which is, is so surprising to me is, uh, you know, we get pitched with uh, all these different studies and people want us to donate money and I go through and I actually read them all. And I'm just amazed at like, uh, you know, how, like, I mean, the approach of just purely pharmacology, like, like there's no, like, I, I got to believe that there's more pieces to this whole thing, more so than just finding the right combination of drugs and to hit into it. And I think with our idea of Wade's Army, part of my thing was like, if, uh, if the, you know, standard of care is really just, you know, this different, you know, approach through studies and pharmacology and testing all these drugs, like there has to be other things out there. And, uh, you know, that was one of the original missions is like, is there a way to look at like some micronutrient stuff? I mean, are we looking at the gut? Like there's gotta be a million different places more so than just pumping these kids full of drugs. And, uh, that's what I really wanted Wade's army to become was, you know, not, not alternative medicine, but are there other things that were, that were not examining, uh, outside the standard of care? Yeah. I mean, we know nutrition certainly has a big part in all of cancer care and certainly in, in neuroblastoma cancer care. And that's been pretty well studied. Not, not every place has a team, uh, in place to make sure patients are adequately uh, provided nutrition while they're going through cancer therapy. So that is somewhat specialized care, but there have been studies in adults and kids looking at outcomes of, you know, you take a, a group of patients um, and half that group just gets, you know, eats and drinks as they would like to. And the other half is really provided aggressive nutritional support. And there is a survival difference from their cancer, not, you know, like the percentage of patients cured is, is greater in those patients who are provided aggressive nutritional support. That's not the same thing as micronutrients. You know, we, there's a lot we don't know. Sure. And we certainly look in medicine, you know, we look back at like how people used to treat TB before there were drugs that treated TB by, you know, sending you out to Arizona or sometimes taking a lung out and filling your chest cavity with ping pong balls. Like, and we go, boy, that is crazy. Like, how could they do that? Yeah. And the, the age old, uh, that, like doc holiday, like has TB and, you know, sent him out to live out in Texas and Arizona mm -hmm. and New Mexico. Cause it was a drier climate. Yeah. And you know, I hope we get to a point soon where we look at the therapies we're giving now as somewhat barbaric and archaic because they are kind of barbaric and archaic. You know, they don't target most of the therapies we give in neuroblastoma don't target the cancer cells specifically. They can't, they target rapidly dividing cells. And that's why you get a lot of toxicity because many of your cells in your body are dividing, you know, sure. the cells in your bone marrow and your hair cells and the cells that line your mouth and intestine. And those are all dividing. And so it targets all of those too. We are getting to the place of personalized medicine that is more targeted, but we're not quite there yet. We have not figured out what that target is in neuroblastoma. In other cancers, they have, but not neuroblastoma yet. Doc, uh, like, let's take a step back. Um, you sure. know, I mean, there, there's obviously people on this podcast or who that are tuning in that have only heard. I mean, sadly, um, when my wife mentioned, you know, as Wade was going through this fight, uh, neuroblastoma, I had never heard of neuroblastoma. You know, I mean, I remember Jerry's kids and, you know, all these other different, you know, charities and this. I mean, but neuroblastoma which is, you know, the largest killer of kids within this age group is so just underrepresented. And, uh, I think that was what was the big like strike for me where I was like, we got to do something. Cause you know, I, I consider myself to be fairly educated, uh, you know, not just tuning into the media, but you know, I mean, I'm, you know, like to think I'm a pretty sharp dude and I've been around a bunch of different stuff. You know, I played in the NFL. I mean, we did uh, stuff with autism, um, you know, every different, you know, pediatric infliction that we we dealt with was, you know, kind of put on, but nothing with neuroblastoma. So I was hoping you could get in and really just discuss like, what is neuroblastoma? Uh, you know, 
you know, when people hear neuro, they think brain cancer, you know, like kind of just some of the pieces sure. of it kind of educate the population. So neuroblastoma is a kind of cancer. Uh, it originates in the adrenal system, which includes the adrenal glands that sit above your kidneys, but also other nerves in the body, in the abdominal cavity or chest cavity. Um, and that's the part of your body that makes adrenaline, also known as epinephrine, the, the fight or flight hormone. So it's, it is a common solid tumor in childhood, the, the most common so, solid tumor in the abdomen in childhood, but that, that's a, a lot of qualifiers, right? So cancer in kids is not that common. Most, most pediatricians might have one patient that has cancer in their lifetime. So we see a lot of kids with cancer because it's uh, our specialty, but it's not common for people to know, you know, to have, it's not like the flu, right? Where you're like, oh, I, I had it and my kid had it. You probably don't know a lot of people whose kids have had cancer, but for us, it's pretty common. And like you said, it's one of the more common causes of death from cancer. So leukemia is much more common than neuroblastoma, but most kids with leukemia are cured and neuroblastoma were not as good at curing. There's different risk groups and it is a weird cancer because while it is a cancer, if you are an infant and have neuroblastoma, um, sometimes we just watch it and it goes away on its own. Even if it's spread, it can go away on its own, which is a weird thing to wrap your mind around. Like, But it is a cancer, but it can go away on its own. But if you're a toddler, usually it needs very aggressive therapy. And we kind of throw the kitchen sink at neuroblastoma. Patients get high-dose chemotherapy. They get surgery. They get what's called an autologous stem cell transplant, meaning they collect the patient's own blood-forming stem cells and then give them very, very high-dose chemotherapy and give them their stem cells back. They get radiation. Um, I don't know if I mentioned surgery, but they get yeah. surgery in there. And then they get immunotherapy and biologic therapy. So it's about a year and a half of a of pretty intense therapy altogether. What's the outcome? I mean, um, you know, I mean, obviously you said like, hey, you're throwing the kitchen sink at these kids. I'm just wondering, is it, uh, I mean, I, we, we know the outcomes aren't very good, but, you know, what's the, Yeah. I mean, it, it, is it super specific? I mean, like I feel like, and at, at least from the information we've seen, uh, there's a pretty good chance that uh, if you beat it, it's usually the first time. When it comes back the second time, that seems to be, you know, the uh, you know where things get really ugly. So I'm just wondering if, like, the sometimes the you know the treatment for these kids is is so extreme that it kills the neuroblastoma, but it also destroys the immune system in such a way that if it does come back, they don't really have much left to fight. It's so the outcomes dependent upon risk group, and so low risk patients that typically just get surgery or just observation, most of those are cured, you know, 90% or more of those patients are cured. When we use those numbers, it's, we always make sure people understand that no individual patient is 90% cured, right? So 90% just means you take a hundred patients that have low risk neuroblastoma, 90 are cured, but 10 are not. And so you know, it's, it's a binary thing, right? You can't be 90% cured. So if you're one of those 90 that are cured, it's great. But if you're one of those 10 that are not, like, it's still horrible. Um, intermediate risk where you get a little bit of chemotherapy, but no radiation and none of the other stuff. That's more like, say, 80% or so are cured. And then high risk the latest data is like in the 60s, 60% are cured, somewhere around there. 
it used to be like when I started in this, it was more like 30, 30, 35% are cured. So it's certainly gotten much better in the last 20 years. And then you're correct that one of the things with high-risk neuroblastoma, not as much intermediate or low-risk neuroblastoma is we don't know the cure once you've relapsed. It's not as much that patient's body's immune system aren't normal at that point, because sometimes they relapse five years or 10 years later. And at that point, their immune system is completely recovered. It's just, there is something about neuroblastoma once it's been exposed to all those modalities, which is sort of everything we have, you know, radiation and high dose chemo and immunotherapy, they tend to be very resistant. You know, they might go away for a little bit, but then they come back and it's that we do not know the answer to yet. With, uh, you know, you mentioned that, um, you know, babies are born, uh, you know, pretty young and are diagnosed with neuroblastoma. I mean, is this something that's happening in utero? I mean, you know, is it happening something in the womb and then the baby's born and this is already kind of yeah. inspiring? Well, or it's just immature fetal tissue that hasn't resorbed yet because it's very hard to tell the difference between fetal adrenal tissue and neuroblastoma. And that's why sometimes babies are born with adrenal tumors um, and you just watch them and they kind of go away because they, they should have gone away in utero, but they take some time to do that. Is it, um, and I'm sure this is, you know, crystal ball. I'm sure it's a little bit of both, but I mean, is it uh, genetic? Is it environmental? Is it, uh, you know, something that the, you know, genetics, I'm sure you guys have looked at, you know, is it genetics, epigenetics, is it, uh, mm -hmm. uh environmental or is it just, you know, the luck of the draw and, you know, some people get it, some people don't. We are still trying to learn the answer to some of those questions. We're pretty sure it is not environmental. Most pediatric malignancies are not environmental because, you know, they haven't been exposed to enough environment to, to develop a malignancy. Um, but we are continuing to do research on that and, you know, encouraging patients to participate in in that research, even though it may not benefit that patient, it might benefit the next generation. Genetics, we are learning more about. There are some inheritable neuroblastoma syndromes, but they're very, very rare. Um, so most patients that have neuroblastoma don't have a genetic predisposition about which we know. Mm. Um, but like I said, you know, it's in some ways it's early days, right? And so there's a lot, when we look at some of the simpler cancers and some of the leukemias are, are much simpler. And by that, I mean, for neuroblastoma, we have not found a unifying genetic mutation like all patients, all tumors have mutation X and we can see it in everybody. But there are some leukemias where they have found a single mutation that causes that leukemia. And they've been able to take that mutation and insert it in the lab into normal white cells. Um, and those cells become leukemia. And if they turn that mutation off with targeted drugs or things like that, those leukemia cells revert back to normal. And so there is a model in cancer of a genetic cause for all cancers. It's very possible we're just not good enough to know that yet in neuroblastoma, but that's one of the things we're working on. So if, um, I'm just wondering, like, uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've had, you know, I've, I have three kids and, uh, I'm just thinking like, uh, what are the symptoms? Like, uh, you know, is this something that's caught in a, you know, pediatric checkup or, you know, as parents, you kind of, you know, when you have your first kid, you really don't have any 
you know, perception of like what's happening. So you don't, you know, you can maybe slow to react, like thinking like, oh, this isn't going to happen to my kid. I'm just wondering like, what are the symptoms? How do parents necessarily get a heads up that something's wrong and at least start down this path of investigation? Yeah, that's a really tricky question because for all cancers, uh, leukemia and neuroblastoma and, you know, the symptoms aren't any different than the kind of things your kids I'm sure have had, you know, like it may be a limp or, you know, pain in their leg. It may be that they're more tired. It may be that, you know, they throw up the differences with cancer. Um, you know, those things don't go away. So it's very tricky to talk to, parents of kids with cancer, once their kids say are done with their cancer therapy um, about, well, what should you worry about? Because, you know, the symptoms are the same kind of things that normal kids get. It's just, you know, with a kid that doesn't have cancer, they might be saying my leg hurts and then the next day they're fine. Right. Sure. Um, or they throw up, but then the next day they're fine. And so with cancer, it just doesn't go away. Hmm. Um, there's not really a benefit with pediatric malignancies, any of them to early diagnosis, like with adults, right? You, they screen for prostate cancer and they screen for colon cancer and breast cancer, because there is a benefit to early diagnosis of those things, um, because of the way those cancers behave where they tend to start localized and then spread over time if you don't diagnose them early. For pediatric malignancies, particularly neuroblastoma, they don't behave that way in the sense that they, neuroblastoma behaves as it is biologically programmed to behave. That might be a confusing sentence, but some neuroblastomas will never spread no matter how big the tumor gets they just will stay localized and need surgery to take the tumor out and other neuroblastomas like will spread before you have any symptoms because biologically that's what they're programmed to do their particular mutations have programmed those cancer cells to spread and so early diagnosis really doesn't play a part in neuroblastoma, like as long as the child is relatively well, um, you know, we never have a case where we say, oh boy, if you had come in last week, like this would be curable, but now it isn't. That's, that's never the case. Yeah. We been doing this 10 year, 10 years ago, Wade's well, angel is coming up on November 12th, 2011. Um, but then this is our 10th year of fundraising. And the term we hear a lot with families that we're connected to, one of the things Wade's Army does is connect with families in the fight and then provide financial support is the, the stage four. So they, the kid is not diagnosed until this stage four. Mm-hmm. So like, is that when things become most severe in terms of pain or, or just jumping out and blood work? No. Well, staging I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole. So tell me if we get too complicated, but no, you, you're I mean, on is, this podcast. You can get as far down the rabbit hole as you want. Okay. I mean, that's, uh, that's really just, I mean, that's kind of actually should be in our show notes. We're going down the rabbit hole. Um, so staging is basically where is the tumor located? Oh, okay. And so the old staging was one, two, three, four, four being it's spread distantly. Like if you have an adrenal tumor, say above your left kidney, now it's also spread to the bone marrow or bones, say. Um, now, like for the past couple of years, they stopped using the one, two, three, four, and they use L1, L2, M, M for metastatic. And so M and four are the same, but M is the more modern um, phraseology. So stage four just means it is metastasized or spread at the time of diagnosis. 
But like I said, that's not really like in neuroblastoma. That's not because, oh, you should have come in last week and then it would have been localized. But now it's metastasized because they spread very, very early when they spread, because biologically, that's what that tumor is going to do. And we've certainly seen patients who have enormous localized tumors that didn't spread at all. And then we've seen patients um, who were found incidentally, like fell out of a tree and had a CT scan or were in a car that was hit, you know, by another car. And so got a CT scan because they had, you know, been in some trauma and they found a small adrenal mass that had already metastasized. And so the stage four or M is the highest stage, meaning it's spread, but it's not because people should have come in early, you know, and that, but that is a question we get from parents all the time. There, you know, there's a lot of guilt about like, oh, I knew something wasn't right and I should have come in last week and then he would have been fine. Um, but that's not really the case with, with neuroblastoma. Is it, um, uh, you know, you always hear these, anecdotal stories of people with tumors where, um, and i I can think of actually two individuals that were adults that went in for something. Uh, like I had a buddy whose, uh, dad was having a bunch of knee pain. So they went in and we're going to do a orthoscope and they open it up and they find a huge tumor, a huge tumor on the back of his knee. You know, they close him back up. And then once it was exposed to the air, it just exploded and just went all over. Same thing with my neighbor, Tom Dye. He went in for, uh, they were going to do something with his gallbladder and went in and saw a huge tumor. Similar deal. He was gone, uh, you know, pretty short after that. So why is it that, uh, you know, when you disturb those tumors or expose them to air, do all of a sudden they seem to just, you know, start moving and, and growing. And all of a sudden then it's like, uh, you know, it becomes very, very aggressive. Well, I think that's predominantly coincidental, right? Like tumors don't get air get oxygen from being exposed to air, they get oxygen from blood supply. So, you know, that's the, the thing one learns the deeper you get into the science is there's a lot we can't completely explain. And that's why you have to look at big numbers of, you know, like clinical trials. Um, as I've talked to Heather about, like they take big numbers because things happen. We don't, we can't always explain and you don't want to either make the assumption that things that a drug is not working when it is, or is working when it isn't, which can happen. Um, if you just have, you know, 10 patients in a clinical trial. So things like you know, they were fine and then they had surgery that exposed it to air and then the tumor blew up. In large numbers of patients, it will become clear that that's not because of the surgery. It just happened uh, at the same time as a coincidence. Yeah, like uh, the like it was uh, at the point where it was so debilitating they got surgery and it was on the, on the cusp of something. Right. You know, I, I kind of imagine... Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like as a tumor grows, it gets to kind of a, a critical mass kind of point where all of a sudden now it's like it explodes and then, you know, now it just leaks out all through the body. It can, you know, it can, I mean, I don't know the, the specifics of that case. Sometimes, you know, we have seen patients get very sick, not because it's spread, but just because it's causing local compromise, like compressing the aorta or the IVC or an important blood vessel and that causes, you know, death eventually. And sometimes it's because it's spread to places, the lungs or bone marrow or things like that, that can't be treated. So why is it that, um, I mean, is this something that we see in adults or is it just localized to kids within, you know, the first five, six years of their life? And then uh, you know, like what happens to the body where now all of a sudden the, you know, it doesn't form in the adrenals and we seem to it kind is of safeguard interesting, against right? it. It's not, um, it's far more common in toddlers, uh, up to the age of say five or six, but we do see patients that are, you know, seven, eight, nine or so that, that develop 
neuroblastoma. We certainly have seen like adults. I've had patients in their late 20s and a patient in their late 30s um, that developed neuroblastoma as an adult. Um, and that's a particularly tricky uh, patient population. I mean, it's not, uh, it's not that common, right? There's probably just a handful a year that are diagnosed at that age. But they're often stuck between a children's hospital that knows how to treat neuroblastoma but isn't allowed to because most children's hospitals aren't allowed to treat patients over 21, sometimes 18. And an adult hospital that doesn't know how to treat patients with neuroblastoma and frankly isn't always that interested in learning you know they they see a lot of cancer right but it's all breast cancer and colon cancer and things that aren't neuroblastoma so that can be particularly challenging what what makes neuroblastoma different i mean um you know i mean you know uh, cells grow, cells divide, cells die. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of the natural process. And then all of a sudden those cells that should die continue to grow and they become cancerous cells. I'm wondering about like, uh, you know, what it is about neuroblastoma that's so aggressive that, uh, you know, these kids have to go into these different treatments or is this just standard of care for all cancers? Like, is, you know, are we, are we using the same model for prostate cancer, breast cancer, neuroblastoma? Like, I mean, is it still, you know, Hey, this is how we deal with cancer in 2021. And the model fits for all these different individuals. That's a really good question. I don't know that we completely know the answer to that question. I think, you know, adult malignancies, I mean, I'll say a couple of things that may explain it, but adult malignancies are much more common when you have, you know, when you have a hundred thousand people getting a particular kind of adult cancer a year it's much easier to learn what works and doesn't work, right? Like um, a typical, I'll give you an example of the way clinical trials work. So um, a typical clinical trial in in neuroblastoma takes about say 500 patients or 600 patients to answer a question that takes a couple of years because, um, you know, there's about 500 cases a year in the U S not everybody agrees to participate in clinical trials because you know, that that's up to them, right. They may not feel comfortable with the privacy issues because that patient's data is being collected by the children's oncology group, which is a group of all the children's hospital in this country and Canada a few in Australia that have worked together for decades to try to answer these questions. But you have to be comfortable with having that data shared, even though it's blinded, still not everybody's comfortable with that. We are asking questions about like, is drug X added to the standard of care better than the standard of care alone? Or is it just gonna add toxicity and not be any better? And not everybody's comfortable with that question either. Um, So to get 500 patients or so onto a clinical trial takes years, a couple of years at least. And And then you have to see what the outcome is. And that takes a couple of years. And then, so like the data from a trial that, was written in 2005, I think it started in like 2006 or so. That just came out about two years ago, maybe, like right before COVID. So that's a long time, right? <laughs> like, and that's how long it takes to answer questions in childhood cancer because we don't have, you know, a single institution that sees a thousand of these patients a year, like they do in adult cancers. So that's part of it. You know, adult cancers are a little bit different. They're a little bit ahead of us because there's so many more patients with those cancers. It's a lot easier to do clinical trials with them. 
also the FDA reasonably will not allow a pediatric trial with a new drug before the adult trial and correct doses found in adults. Because obviously kids cannot consent for themselves, right? You have to consent for your child. And so there are safety mechanisms put in place, but it does make things take longer. And adult cancers are just different. You know, some of the treatments, some of the immune modulators that have been proven to benefit in adults, we're still struggling to find that benefit in kids, certainly in neuroblastoma. Can, can you give so, us some examples? I mean, and I know um, like, uh, I mean, geez, uh, when I looked at a bunch of like the adult cancer stuff when I was going through with my dad, mm-hmm. I mean, just like exercise being like a huge uh, player for autophagy and helping, you know, cure that they were like, you know, if somebody can just get out and just do some basic exercise and, you know, the, the outcomes were better. I'm just wondering, like, what are some of those modulators? I mean, I was talking about the, there's particular drugs like PD-1 inhibitors that mm-hmm. that have shown benefit in adults that in neuroblastoma we haven't seen benefit yet and maybe because we're not looking the right way. Certainly things like, you know, we're learning a lot more about what you're talking about, things like sarcopenia. I don't know if you've heard that term. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. For but, those listeners that have not heard of that term, yeah, sarcopenia is it. uh, like uh, it's um, basically like a losing a muscle mass as you age. So as oh, people okay. age, they lose muscle mass and strength. And like the greatest killer of old people isn't necessarily like, you know, infectious disease or everything. Old people lose strength, they lose muscle, and then usually they fall, break something, get confined to a bed. And then that's really, that's the expiration for it. So like survival rates increase. We've talked about um, on this podcast and with numerous guests that like your greatest chance for survival actually is dependent upon how long you can maintain muscle mass. I mean, Ken Ford from uh, Institute of Human Machine and Cognition, that's what you know, he's really geeked on when I went out there and spoke, we were, you know, part of my talk was on, sorry, on fighting sarcopenia, using barbells, performance training, uh, you know, Wolf's law, all these other key factors for fighting it off. So that is, that is correct. And they're looking at that number one, like, how do you measure it? Because there's ways to measure it on, um, CT scans, say looking at, at, uh, paraspinal muscle thickness, um, there's strength testing, there's some fancy scales that can, that can measure muscle mass. Uh, like DEXA scans is another one they use. Um, what's the, uh, thing where you test grip strength? It's not an ergometer, but it's something similar to it. But yeah, that what they'll do is, uh, it's kind of like, um, uh, for Alzheimer's and for, uh, mental degeneration, mm-hmm. uh, things they do handwriting samples. So, uh, you know, in my previous careers, I played in the NFL when I was going through uh, a bunch of like the, you know, research for doctor, I, I was in Dr. Amen's study on the brain, uh, you know, CT and all that, uh, CTE stuff. Um, and one of the things that they did was we did handwriting samples and they talked about, uh, they'll ask, a you know, people come in and every six months they'll have them, you know, write, you know, whatever, you know, the red, the red fox jumps over the running river well, type of a deal. What do they do for doctors? Brian, what's your handwriting like? Horrible. <laughs> horrible. Well, yeah, but it, it they're, they're looking for changes over time. It's not as if he had this amazing so, penmanship. I actually think that part of the requirement to be a doctor is you have to have awful handwriting. I'm out. If You're if, pretty good. Yeah, well, because I practice it all the time. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, because of going through that study, I constantly, every day, like I'll sit down and if I, I doodle, I actually do all my letters and I write out different words. And uh, I think it's because if I can maintain my handwriting, I'll fight off whatever the hell happened to me in the NFL with uh, all these you know hit, hits to the head. So a grip test is a dynamometer. Yeah, dynamometer. So they'll test that with old people where they'll bring them in, yeah. test their grip strength, and then they test them. So that's one. So there's trials in adults that have looked at in can- adults with cancer that have looked at sarcopenia being a being able to look at survival, different survival rates based on how much muscle loss patients have had. And we haven't, there's been like two studies in neuroblastoma patients looking at sarcopenia in neuroblastoma. And then of course the next question is, okay, so let's say we can say 
this patient has muscle mass loss, can we actually address that? And that those are things we're starting to look at at our institution. Um, but again, it's kind of new in pediatrics, certainly. So well, what, uh, what actually ended up killing my dad uh, wasn't necessarily the cancer per se, but uh, he had um, a tumor in his stomach and also, and then it spread to his liver. He mm-hmm. got into the sclerosis where it was pumping out fluid and uh, which was just basically pure protein. So they were doing a um, paracentesis where they were draining his chest cavity and they were taking about, I mean, I want to say like seven. No, it was, God, I forgot exactly how much it was like right around like, uh, um, man, I forgot exactly what it was, but it was something crazy like, uh, you know, 130 cc's of fluid every 10 days out of his chest cavity. And I remember looking at that fluid and you do the research, it's basically the body, you know, the, the liver starts pumping it out, but it's, it's basically, uh, converting all of that muscle mass into that yeah. fluid. So as like, I started doing the calculations, I'm like, okay, dad, Hey, if uh, you're going to beat this thing, uh, you're going to have to eat X amount of calories and this much protein to be able to fight because basically it's just killing your muscle mass. So he went from a body weight of about 235 to 165 pounds in about, oh man, uh, just over two months. Yeah. And I remember, you know, like seeing his chest cavity and we'd go in and get him drained and he'd feel normal. And uh, I'm just looking at that fluid and like you start kind of doing the math in your head and you're like, you're going to basically get to the point where this is, you know, basically consumed you to the point where you have no more strength to fight. And, uh, you know, the problem is, is that with the stomach tumor, everything he ate tasted acidic. So he didn't want to necessarily eat. Yeah. And, but yet he's losing. And so you just kind of look at this equation. It's like, well, you're eating 300 calories a day. You're losing about 25 to 3000 a day. Like we can eventually figure out where this, you know, line kind of ends. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the interesting piece where, you know, it's not necessarily the cancer. It's just the effects of just eating your body that we see. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that happened. Yeah. It's a, it's an awful deal to see. I mean, uh, but you know, as, as I was joking with my dad at the end, he's like, well, I got to live an amazing life and we went through all the things that he got to do. And, uh, you know, you get to the chance to be 80 years old, um, you know, and you get to live this epic life. But I mean, for these kids, I think what was so, uh, heart wrenching for us with, with Wade's army was these kids never get a chance to you know make bad decisions to, you know, drive without their seatbelts or do something dumb or, mm-hmm. you know, get to, you know, be the, the point where you're at this. And I feel like so many times, you know, everybody's about breast cancer and prostate and this. And I'm like, like, we need to focus on giving these kids an opportunity to get to the point where now we all of a sudden need to fight this. Yeah. Doc, I do have a question about treatment centers. You mentioned if one hospital for adult neuroblastoma doesn't know how to treat it. Well, how many children's hospitals treat neuroblastoma? For example, the De Bruin family had to uproot from Princeton, New Jersey to Cincinnati yeah. mm-hmm. just for the opportunity to treatment. So, I mean, how many stories like that are in the country where families got to leave everything behind just for the opportunity to save their child? That's a good question. Let me, before I answer that one, let me answer the question you didn't ask about how many children's hospitals will treat adults with neuroblastoma? And that answer is very, very few. We can in Cincinnati, like we don't, our upper age limits about 45 and not 18 or 21. Um, But yeah, most children's hospitals cannot. As far as people traveling for specialized care, that's, that's a tough one to answer. Um, and there's lots of people that don't have the opportunity to travel, right? Like they had the ability, they had strong family support at home. You know, they had the economic ability to like have an apartment here and still have a home where their other child was. And not everybody can do that. Um, and it's not that other hospitals don't treat neuroblastoma like smaller say smaller children's hospitals um so i don't i wouldn't give that i don't want to give that impression it's just it can be very tricky with high-risk neuroblastoma to know um 
like when are things not going as well as one would expect and you should change gears you know having having a surgeon that's done a lot of neuroblastoma surgery often these tumors aren't just sitting atop the adrenal gland you know in a perfect like well encapsulated sphere they grow around the aorta and like up into the liver and they can be really tricky to know when when you're taking enough but not too much because you know getting the tumor out but having the child not survive the surgery isn't a victory right um and so i do think that that in addition you know there are other big centers um that have that see a lot of neuroblastoma there's you know probably three or four of us around that see a lot of neuroblastoma um and i do think we do offer something that a smaller center may not have the experience with but it's not that they don't offer treatment it's just i feel like some of the things that we have that are our standard of practice are not in a smaller place because they don't see that much of it right like our surgeons probably do two tumor like neuroblastoma surgeries a month and a lot of other places do one a year you know because they don't see it as often yeah over the the past decade we have reached out to over 25 families able to send them what they need financially to uh to help make that transition happen so that's one of the things we highlight on wadesarmy.org to check that out and then if you know someone and then all of the heroes that we have helped, it's been an amazing through our social network that they're able to just somebody hears about power athlete talking about neuroblastoma, Wade's army, and then within their community, somebody they know has it. And then they connect it to, to Wade's army and we're able oh, to provide great. support did, so uh, all through networking. Doc, did you say there was about 500 cases a year? Yes. Okay. 500 a year in yeah, the U S yeah. Yeah. I was clicking around and they set up to like 20,000 cases a year is what we, uh, we see in the States. And I was like, wow, that's, that's kind of, I mean, so, I mean, is that everything from like, uh, you know, Hey, we observed this, you know, tumor in the adrenals in this baby, we're just going to like watch it versus, you know, stage four where now we got to throw the kitchen sink. I mean, is that the range of 500 cases? If yeah, maybe 650 would be the total somewhere around there because most most neuroblastoma is high risk. Sure. You know, so not all, but, but maybe 60% or so. I mean, so how, I mean, I'm thinking like what percentage, I mean, how many, like, what's the age group in that? I mean, how many kids are born in the United States? Like you almost wonder, like, is it, you know, point zeros? I mean, is it so rare that, you know, I mean, well, what's doc, maybe you can answer this. What's the deal with the, uh, government funding, pediatric cancer mm -hmm. and only 4% for all of it. And then yeah. the, you know, the big market illnesses just getting the bulk. Is that all freaking lobbying? Well, I yeah, mean, well, you know, or are they uh, just trying to ahead. put on water wherever there's the biggest fire, you know, I, it's hard. It's, it's, uh, I try not to get the dollars and cents of it. It depends on how you look at it. Like as an example, you know, neuroblastoma therapy is quite expensive. Um, several million dollars a year, uh, a patient. And so it depends on what, what lens you are looking at that through, right? If you look at it from a pu public health lens and you say, oh, with that amount of money, we could immunize, you know, this many children and provide, you know, nutrition, like free lunch, like as a public health issue, I understand why it may seem like there are better uses of that public health dollar. But if it's your kid, like you don't care about any of that, right? <laughs> um, so, and you know, it is true that while neuroblastoma is the most common solid tumor in children, it's certainly not the most common cancer period, right? Adult I don't know the current numbers on breast cancer and lung cancer, but they, you know, they're far, far greater 
than neuroblastoma is. And it's part of the reason like drug companies, you know, we, I don't know if, if Heather spoke to you, but there's a, a compound called MIBG that we've been using in children since the early nineties. It is not FDA approved yet for kids with neuroblastoma, not because it doesn't seem to have efficacy. It's, it's not a cure by itself, but it seems to have efficacy just like chemo does. It's because it costs millions of dollars to do a clinical trial. And there's just, there's just not enough kids that would get it that a drug company is going to make that money back. Right. And they're, they are drug companies are there to make money. Like, um, and so that drug still sits unapproved. We can give it, we can get special permission from the FDA to give it, but it's a lot more complicated than it would be were it, were it approved by the FDA where you can essentially just write a prescription for it. What are you um, talking about? We just get an exemption for a, a experimental, you know, vaccine that, uh, you know, I mean, that took six months and we were able to get that approval. Yeah. Well, so. I mean, drug companies make money <laughs> off of that too, I'm sure. Right. So it it seems like the, the bigger the pool of money, the more lobbyists you have, the easier it is to get stuff pushed through. And unfortunately, I mean, neuroblastoma is a little guy in this whole fight. It is. It is. Mm. But I mean, like organizations like, like you guys run, you know, do bring attention to it. So that's. Well, it's uh, it's amazing in the last 10 years how many people that we've discussed neuroblastoma and have asked us more about Wade's Army that just are extremely just uneducated on it. And these are smart people. And they're like, I've never heard of this. How, you know, I mean, how is this something that's kind of escaped and uh, are, ex are, well, I mean, the way I've explained it is it doesn't affect a lot of kids, but the kids that it does affect, uh, the outcomes are not good. Yeah. And unfortunately... Um, you know, I mean, like you said, I mean, these are, you know, the drug companies are for profit, so they're going to put all their time and resources into the biggest numbers. And, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, uh, you know, and this is where, you know, with uh, neuroblastoma is a little bit different where, you know, these kids haven't been exposed to an environment that's going to necessarily cause neuroblastoma. Whereas if you look at a lot of this environmental stuff, I mean, a lot of cancers are related to the environment and, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, mesothemioma, you know, from um, asbestos. I mean, you know, see those commercials and, you know, whether it be prostate cancer and whatever. I mean, all these things, you know, you can kind of look for some, you know, genetic markers, but also for, you know, environmental markers. So I think because we don't necessarily know and they can't point and be like, oh, well, you know, you lived in a farm in Texas that used glycophosphate and now you're having these other issues. So I think maybe because of that, it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit harder to diagnose. Um, have, have you guys got into, into anything like, I mean, I was reading a bunch of stuff about CRISPR and gene editing, uh, you know, as ways to treat cancer. Have you guys, you know, have you, I mean, and that might be so far on the research side, you haven't even got to it, but I mean, is there a little bit hope looking at some of that stuff? I mean, there is in, in pediatrics, they've done that. Uh, they've already started doing that for things like, Sorry, my dog's going to start to bark. Hold on a second. No problem. Um, for things like sickle cell anemia, where there's a mm -hmm. particular genetic cause and they can do CRISPR gene editing and remove that genetic cause. Um, if we found the genetic cause of neuroblastoma, particularly if we found an inherited genetic cause for neuroblastoma, that might be possible. But we don't know what that is yet. You know, we have not found a, a unifying um, gene that all neuroblastomas have. And that's one of the things we're working on here is, and, and lots of other places too, I'm sure, is trying to find what the genetic cause for neuroblastoma is. Do you have uh, any suspicions or, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, pie in the sky, like ideas of like, you know, I mean, because I'm, I'm sure if you take all those kids and you were to put them through like a battery of like everything from like genetics to micronutrients and you did all this testing, you know, and you put it all up there and you started looking and trying to draw some commonalities like, uh, 
you know, trying to find a serial killer and start drawing like, you know, strings everywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm just wondering if you've had enough, uh, you know, you've been in this fight for a long time. I mean, you know, what does your gut reaction feel like with it? Or if it's just like, we don't know every case is different. We have, we have some early ideas of genes that, that look promising, but we don't have anything that, you know, a eureka moment where we've seen it in every neuroblastoma. We do sequence all patients with neuroblastoma here. And um, yeah, we don't have an answer yet. Is there, um, you know, like, a, I'm just thinking like, a, you know, whenever you get your genetics done, they start showing you like, hey, you know, based upon your genetic code, this is where you're from. I'm just wondering if like, is it something that afflicts everybody or is it more linked to like, I don't know, Northern European, certain areas of the world? That's a different kind of genetic sequencing than we do. We're really just sequencing the tumor for about 500 different genes that are known to be involved with cancer. Um, what, like you're talking about what ancestry.com or 23andMe does, which um, they're looking, I think they're looking more at what are called SNPs, mm -hmm. which are little polymorphisms. A polymorphism is different than a mutation. So like, you know, the two of you have almost identical genes, right? But you're going to have little differences that makes one of you taller than the other or one of you have darker hair than the other. And those are polymorphisms, which are not a, not a mutation, not something that, that causes an abnormal protein. It's just what causes us all to not look the same. The, what we're looking for in cancer cells is a mutation, like a, a break in, uh, say, a normal cell death pathway that isn't functioning in a cancer cell where it's functioning in a normal cell. Gotcha. Um, and they can, each patient kind of can serve as its own control because you can compare tumor to that patient and see, well, why, you know, where are the differences and to try to find what could be the cause of the cancer. But, you know, we'll, we'll be farther five years from now than we are now. And we're certainly farther ahead now than we were five years ago. So. Do you feel that, um, I mean, it's just like a, you know, technology keeps coming out that allows us to just kind of hit this moving target. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we, we've seen within the last 10 years, I mean, hopefully maybe the outcomes improve, but it, I mean. it's an interesting fundraising appeal because as you mentioned, the, the length of these trials. So some of the things where we had individuals that donated in 2012, 13, 14, and then we update them on that trial. It's, it's pretty crazy because, you know, we're, it's, it's not as an immediate response. You know, we hope to, to cure that with, by giving an awesome t-shirt yeah, but uh, and people are like, hey, what about that? Uh, I got an email the other day. Hey, what about that trial that we funded? And what about this? And we're like, it's been six years and we're still, you know, in, in the fight of this. And and I think the Heather yeah. does keep us up to date and yeah. then Wade's Army dot work. But the, the more but. the biggest one is because they don't have or there's not enough pay or individuals into the trial. You know, yeah. I'm sure if you had, you know. A hundred thousand, you know, like you have with breast cancer. I mean, it's easier right. to kind of see these things in real time because you have enough data points and enough people that are hopefully putting their you know heads together, you know, right. more so than. And the other thing that's like just a uh, a truism of statistics, and it's a good thing, but it does add to this problem. Is statistically speaking, if you have a cancer for which only say one out of 10 patients is cured, it's much easier to show a change than if you have a cancer for which nine out of 10 patients are cured, right? You need, you need very far fewer patients in a clinical trial to show the difference between say one out of 10 being cured and two out of 10 being cured than you do in a trial to show the difference like between nine out of 10 and 10 out of 10. So statistically, the lower your cure rate, the smaller your patient 
trial, the smaller number of patients you need in a clinical trial. And so as we get better, and I mentioned to you, like the curates are about twice what they were 20 years ago, the trials get bigger. Mm. So it's not just that people are slower, it's that the trials have to double or more in size to make sure what you're seeing in a diff, you know, in the outcome isn't just chance. Right. So that's why that's what the statistics behind those trials are trying to do is say, Hey, when I see that this drug worked, is that just chance? Like I happen to have a few more patients that did well in, in the treatment group than in the control group. Um, so that is the other, like, you know, thing that's, there's no way around it. It's just what happens as your, our cure rate goes up, our trials have to get bigger. And then the changes are slower because the answers come slower. Is there, um, is there anything on the horizon that you're really excited about that potentially, you know, uh, um, I always feel like there's some new technology or something that's kind of on the cusp, but that this might give us a chance to kind of jump a little bit farther. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, we're looking at, uh, things like flash radiotherapy, which is giving very high doses of radiation in a short period of time. And it's somewhat counterintuitive because you'd think like, oh, you'd have a lot more toxicity, but in fact, you have less toxicity. It seems like when that's happening, they're just starting the trials in adults. Um, and certainly neuroblastoma we know is a radiosensitive tumor. So flash radiotherapy, I think is really interesting. Looking at immunomodulators with flash radiotherapy, there's something that happens with radiation. So we know, we know that our bodies are one of the things that helps us fight cancer, right? Is your immune system. Um, and there are ways that the cancer cells hide from the immune system. That's what the PD-1 inhibitors are designed to help. And so one of the things that radiation seems to do is unmask those cancer cells, like the, what are called the cancer cell antigens, um, seem to be more visible to the immune system after radiation. So we're working on how we can exploit that. There are some new radio pharmaceuticals and the MIBG I mentioned is considered a radio pharmaceutical that might be better than MIBG that are being tested. Um, we have a trial open in Cincinnati of a copper 67 drug that seems very promising, but it's early. Uh, so there, there's some cool new stuff coming out. Doc, is it, if any social presence or opportunity for people to follow along what Cincinnati Children's is doing? <laughs> um, I mean, not myself. I have no social media presence, but certainly Cincinnati Children's Hospital. I'm is so jealous, Doc. And, I wish we didn't have a social media presence either. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, Cincinnati Children's and the Neuroblastoma Center at Cincinnati Children's certainly is on the on the web. I don't know what else they're on, though, frankly. And I've sort of got blinders on in my head down when it comes to that stuff. Well, leave it to us. If you want to learn more at Wade's Army, waynesarmy.org. We got a rocking new t-shirt to commemorate 10 years. Yeah, 10 years, man. Plus some some sweet yetis, yeah. which, Doc, I'll, I'll be, be sure to follow up and send some your way. Yeah, oh, no, great. if uh, yeah, people want to get involved, um, yep. like you said, waynesarmy.org. We do um, our annual t-shirt deal, and we're really just kind of up in the game a little bit with uh, being able to provide more than just t-shirts. Um uh, geez, I think we did this purely as volunteers for, you know, a couple of years. I mean, for almost the entirety of this deal and only, I think it was last year, you know, with COVID and just some of the stuff we had to finally hire somebody to come on and kind of help us kind of shotgun this thing. It's just because we were you know getting pulled in so many different directions, but uh, super transparent and 
just really looking forward to. And with each you know, donation, you get the opportunity to select where yeah. of our initiatives you'd like your donation to go. So we're building a in. Uh, it's either UNC or Cincinnati Children's Sweet Kitchen to help provide and educate parents with nutrition, cooking lessons, and all that good stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, no, uh, Heather's been great in terms of like helping us kind of navigate the landscape because, um, you know, it's ever changing. So we appreciate your support and dude, and hopefully, uh, hopefully next time we talk, hopefully, you know, maybe in the near future, next couple of years, all of a sudden, you know, a lot of the questions that we discussed here today, you know, become more clear and we can continue to take the fight to Norwestone. Great. Thanks doc. Thanks. Yeah. For coming I on. hope, uh, before I retire, this is all over. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be uh, tough to, you know, all of a sudden as you're retiring, handing off to your uh, predecessor, you know, the person taking over and being like, well, we're no farther, you know, today than we were five years ago. But it seems like we're making strides and we're moving in the right direction and hopefully things become more clear and we can help more kids. Yeah, I hope so. Cool. Well, thanks, Doc, for all the work you do. And um, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to choose from a number of programs to meet your specific performance goals. And if you like to break a mental sweat too, visit academy.powerathletehq.com and become a real stakeholder in you or your athlete's success. Until next time, bye!